This is Unplugged, 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 Unplugged. Welcome to this episode of Unplugged. We have been talking about the subject of suffering and suffering according to God's will. We have looked at questions, the, the common questions that plague us or that keep on, that are at the forefront of our minds or perhaps in the depths of our hearts, the questions that we can't really you know, wrap our minds around when we're going through a season of suffering. For instance, why does God allow suffering? Another question we addressed was why do we need to suffer or why do we need to embrace our suffering seasons? And as we were talking about that, we also discussed, um, we in parallel, in parallel, we were also addressing the question, what is suffering according to God's will versus not suffering according to God's will, which is, I believe, where we shall end up uh, 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 camping for, for, for this episode. But I say that with God, we always have to put things in context because God has absolutes, these absolute qualities. Sometimes it's challenging for us human beings when his absolute power or his absolute attribute is not manifested. You know, how can a God who's all loving, who's all power, who's all this, how can he allow this to happen? How can he allow, you know, my mother, my father, my, 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 my relative, my so-and-so to die? How can he allow me to go through this? I thought he's all power. I thought he's all love. So most God gets a bad rap because of this. People always only talk about the absolute attributes they never put things in context and so i i, I labor to explain that one of the scenarios one of the questions that we looked at in our previous episode was how do we end up on suffering street because this is a question that i believe gives us context for the other questions why does god allow suffering why do we need to suffer or why do we need to embrace our seasons of suffering? And what is suffering according to God's will versus not God's will? How we end up on suffering street for me gives us more context. And I say that to truly understand, yes, God is love. And God did not intend for us to suffer. That was his ultimate plan. But his plan was sabotaged. Now, again, it's always very interesting to hear, well, if God is all power, how can his plan be sabotaged? You have to you have to understand that if God, in order for God to have, yes, God is sovereign, but in order for that attribute of sovereignty to always be expressed at all times, God would have had it to, in essence, lower the degree that human beings have willpower. Because God gave human beings willpower, because he didn't want to create robots. That meant that his sovereignty would not 
always be fully expressed, especially if you look at it in the context of the fall of man. Now, if you really want to see who the kind of God God is, you, you look at the first two chapters of Genesis before the fall of creation, and you see what his intended plan was. And then between Genesis chapter 2, I mean, from Genesis chapter 3, we encounter the fall of man. And you go all the way to the end of the book, Revelation. You will see God kind of get us back into his um, predestined plan, his ultimate plan, his absolute plan, when we enter what we call the new age. I, I, I mean, the when we enter into the next world, which is the, the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, when you read from Revelation chapter 21, you see a picture painted that God now gets back to being able to exercise full sovereignty, in essence, because Satan, uh, the four, the, 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 the disruptor of God's plan, will be put away with. And even there, we see what is called the, uh, the, 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 the great white throne judgment, which is basically a judgment of people who said they don't want anything to do with God. So basically, um, you know, what they call judgment day, what the Bible calls judgment day, is just a day when people who will say, who say they don't believe in God, they don't want anything to do with God, will basically be told, okay, sure, you don't get to protect, you don't get to, to live in heaven for the you know for eternity. You get to, to go to hell, which is unfortunately says hell was not hell was intent was initially built, created for the devil and his angels, so satanic angels. That's whom hell was created for. God did not intend for everyone, for anyone to go to hell. So hell is just a place, uh, I know I'm downplaying it, but in, in, in essence, hell is just a place where God is not going to be. So Satan is going to be there. Evil spirits are going to be there. The angels who rebelled against God in heaven that decided to depart with Lucifer are going to be there. And every creation, every human being who basically said, I don't believe in God and I don't want anything to do with God. That's what hell is. That, that's who's going to be in hell. Anyways, um, my point is, I look at God and I say, God is love, absolutely love, because I see what his initial plan was. He got disrupted, again, because he had given a certain will to man. He said that the scripture says the earth, the heaven is the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the sons of men. And then Adam committed high treason. Now, to answer this question of how do we end up on Suffering Street, I say that the first time we see human beings end, ending up in downtown suffering or Suffering Street, the, the, the issue, the, 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 the problem was caused by the act of disobedience. And in Romans chapter 5, we see this being expressed in detail. Let me quickly read there. Romans chapter 5, 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many 
be made righteous. So how do we end up on suffering street from our last, from our previous episode, we say that the first time we see man ending up on suffering street was because of disobedience. And that seems to be a theme that plays out in our own individual lives. Disobedience is primarily the way in which we end up on suffering street. Now, in the, the kind of suffering that we looked at, and we will probably just quickly touch on here, was we looked at the suffering of Job. and said Job was not a man who was walking in disobedience, but Job was caught up in what I call a battle of bragging rights, a battle where Satan had tested people on the earth with sickness, disease, and had basically um, corrupted their ecosystem and they had all, and the, whoever Satan was tempting at that time was not holding fast to their faith. They were cursing God. But we see a man, Job, who is caught up as someone that God wanted to make an example, basically, and brag about and say, listen, Satan, why are you going for the weaklings? Have you considered my servant, Job? Because in the book of Job, we see it in verse 1, chapter one says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So this was Job, a man who was perfect, upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. So the context of disobedience and how Job ended up on Suffering Street is different. Job was brought to the witness stand. God needed someone to stand up and still show that I still have people who hold integrity. Because when Job is tested, when in verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears evil and eschews evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Has, have, have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and all about that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, when you read that in context, that tells me by the fact that the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan in verse 11 saying, Put forth thine hand and touch him, and he will curse you to thy face. When you compare those scriptures, what it tells me is Satan had gotten away, had managed to cause some people who believed in God to curse him. And God was saying, well, why are you going after the weaklings? I have someone who won't turn their back against me. Well, Satan counters God and says, do you think he, he's not going to turn against you for nothing? It's because you've protected him, you've blessed him, because it says Job was the greatest man in the East. It says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright. But it says in, in, in verse 
uh, somewhere, it talks about Job was the greatest man in the East. Uh, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere in one of the scriptures, it talks about uh, Job was the greatest man in the East. Anyways, um, yeah, his substance, it talks about his substance. Yes, in verse 3, it says his substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So the context of Job's suffering that a lot of people always like to use to say, you know, how, how God will send disease and all of these things. And, and that, that is, there's a lot of false doctrine out of the, that has been drafted, that has come out of the book of Job. You need to understand here, God was looking for someone to say, no, I still have someone who would hold fast to me. And this guy is loyal to me, not because I've blessed him, not because he has money, not because he has wealth, not because he has a large family, not because he does not fall sick. No, it is in the integrity of his heart. Anyways, Satan attacks Job's family. Basically, God takes the hedge away. Satan attacks Job's family. Job loses his property. He even loses his seven, his, his ten children. He had three daughters and seven sons. Now, if you read that and stop there, you're going to be like, what kind of God is this? However, it, it gets worse for Job, which, again, if you stop here, you'll be like, oh, my goodness. So... You know, Job loses his sons and daughters. And in verse chapter 1, verse 20, after Job received the news that, behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and fell upon the young men. Actually, in verse 18, it says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another servant of Job and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Wow. How many of us would receive such a report? You've just lost a loved one. Something terrible like that has happened. You've lost, you know, a loved one, not just one. Two, Job lost 10 loved ones in one instant. But it says he rose up, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground and washed it. Now we start to see Job lamenting. Of course, this was a man that was lamenting from his soul. He was trying to make sense of why these things had happened. Just like many of us, when you're going through suffering, you're asking, why am I going through this? Job did not understand that actually he's suffering. He had been nominated for what I call a medal of honor. He did not know this. But he rose up and he shaved his head, fell, fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked came, I out, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now, many a times, people use this phrase at funerals the lord has given and the lord has taken job said that god did not say that if you really want to know if the lord giveth and he taketh he doesn't stop there if you want to say that because at the end of 
Job chapter 42, we see God returned everything to Job twice as much. And even Job had seven, ten other children. And in fact, his children were even, uh, the scripture says, even better looking. They were probably wiser, smarter than the first set of kids that he had. So for me, that shows me that at the beginning of the story of Job, God is love. Satan once again comes in to challenge him. And unfortunately for Job, he was put on the witness stand. God needed a witness. So Job was caught up. He did not know he had been nominated for a medal of honor. However, at the end of Job, we see who God's true character is because in verse chapter 2, it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence camest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down it. Meanwhile, Job has lost everything, but listen to what the Lord said. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? that there is none like him in the earth. This is who Job was. There was no one like him in the earth. So when a battle came, a battle of integrity was presented, God had to choose his strongest servant. Again, unfortunately for Job, he was caught up in this battle. But God says there's none like him in the earth, a perfect, upright man, one that fears God, eschews evil, and still holds first his integrity, although thou moved me against him to destroy him without cause. So Job was not a guy that was walking in disobedience to end up on suffering street. Satan again comes in and counters God and says, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Meaning, you cannot touch his life. You cannot kill him. Try, you can try him with sickness, but you cannot kill him. Then he goes on to say, Satan smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. Job took a portrait to him to scrape himself, and he sat down in the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. That is where the, the, this whole test of Job was hinging on, holding fast to integrity or curse God and die. So, Scripture says, it goes on to say that Job, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job starts to mourn and lament and ask so many questions. But at the end of Job, chapter 42, we see who God truly is. Again, I'm trying to say in context, you will understand that sometimes in context, the true sovereignty of God is not fully expressed or manifested. But in Job chapter 42, we see it says God restores and blesses Job. In verse 10, it says, Job chapter 42, verse 10 says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. They bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. Listen to verse 12. It's very beautiful. It says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job 
more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. Then it says he had also seven sons and three daughters. So if you're ever going to use the phrase, the Lord giveth and he taketh, make sure you also add the Lord giveth, he taketh, but he giveth back. God is not someone who will take from you and leave you with nothing. If you're ever in a situation where you end up on a witness stand and, you, and God has also nominated you for a medal of honor, be rest assured that even though you lose seven children, God will restore them. Even though you lose 10 children, God will restore them. Verse 14 says, he called the name of the first one, Jemima, the next one, Kezir, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. So God, when God restored Job, we see he restored his property. He restored his skin. He restored his children. He restored all his children. And on top of that, God even gave him a bonus of 140 years. How many wouldn't you take the deal? Of course, it would be painful to go through that. But if you look at it, who won? Job won. You know, God got his credit. Proved his point that there's people who still love him despite of if they have money or not, despite of if they've lost, lost loved ones or not. And, and God was like, since I was caused to move against you without a cause, here you go. I've returned twice as much to you. So that was the context of Job. So that one is a unique one. And then we also talked about the, the context that we we, we, we we looked at in the last, in our previous episode, was the context of suffering where you are the one, there is a cause that there's something that has caused you to end up on suffering street. Right? And that was from this whole point of disobedience because we say the first time we see man end up on suffering street was because of disobedience so that's how man ended up on suffering street that was the fall of man in the book of genesis chapter 3. likewise in our own lives before we can start to ask why is god allowing me to suffer why is god allowing me to go through this yada 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 we need to address a bigger question how did i even end up on suffering street so for context and scripture um, for context and scripture, we see that um, in the book of Psalm, chapter 119, we see a context that tells us, that really explains how we end up on Suffering Street. So in Psalms chapter 119, we see this, if you read from verse 65 to verses... 71 it says thou has dealt well with thy servant O lord according unto thy word teach me good judgment and knowledge for i have believed thy commandments before i was afflicted this is the verse of emphasis verse 67 it says before i was afflicted i went astray 
but now I have kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. We see here Jesus in the flesh, very interestingly, in Hebrews chapter 5, we see the scripture talk about how Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So if Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered, we are also to learn obedience by the things which we suffer. It means that in our nature, our fallen nature, we have that seed of disobedience. In our, we are more prone to do wrong than to do right. We are more apt to, 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 to do the wrong thing than to do the right thing. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Though he, meaning Jesus Christ, were a son, yet he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. But it goes to say, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all men that obey him. So through this learning of obedience, through suffering, it says he became perfect and he became the author of eternal salvation. And we shall look at that as well today in this episode. But you can see here the psalmist is, is, bringing, is, is, is bringing to our attention. He says, before I was afflicted in Psalms 119, he's saying, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. He's acknowledging I ended up on suffering street because I went astray. But now I have learned to keep thy word. Because in Psalms 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So that is, uh, yes, yeah, Psalms 119, the same chapter, but verses 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. So, and he goes on to say, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. So this is how we end up on suffering street. And then also in verses 92, he says, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. Unless your law had been something that I treasured, I should have perished in my affliction. Meaning, if in those moments of affliction, light did not come, that I need, the, the way for me to stay out of this is through the word, through the instructions of God, it means if that understanding did not come, I should, I could have perished. I could have perished. If I'm in a point of suffering and I, and I don't get the understanding that it's God's instructions that, you know, coming back into a line of obedience, sometimes um, you could perish in your afflictions. 
but before you he's telling us before you get into the point of perishing in your affliction to says before you were afflicted you went astray that's what he's saying and he acknowledges in verse 71 he says it is good for me that i have been afflicted that i might learn thy statutes and this is why i say in, in one of the previous episodes that you need to get to a point where you embrace your cup of suffering because there are consequences of resisting your cup of suffering which we shall touch on shortly here the consequences when you don't embrace your cup of suffering when you don't embrace the reason as to why you are suffering when you don't accept that class the consequences of resisting your cup of suffering we'll talk about it so in likewise in proverbs chapter 3 we see how we end up on suffering street in proverbs chapter 3 listen to this it says It starts out, I really love it. I'll just read from the top. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 says, My son, forget not my law. Let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. So here's a father telling his son that if you want to stay away from suffering street, if you want to live a long life, if you want to live a life of peace, Forget not my law. It says, let thine heart keep my commandments. That is very important. That is very important. He's telling his son, says, if you want to live a long life, live in peace. He says, forget not my law. Let thine heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and long life and peace shall be added unto thee. Then he goes on to say, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck, write them about the table of thine heart. So shall thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Verse 5 is really when he starts to talk about how you'll see that how we can end up on suffering street if we don't do this. Verse 5, it says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not and to thine own understanding. So if we if we look at what the previous psalmist said that before I was afflicted, I went astray, it's we can see how that happened. It's because that person who went astray did not trust in the Lord with all their heart. They they the scripture says, lean not unto thine own understanding. The person went astray because they leaned on their own understanding. They did not invite God into the situation beforehand. Verse 6 says, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So again, how do we end up on suffering street? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. How do you go astray? If you don't acknowledge God, if you don't trust in him. If we do things according to our own understanding. It says, be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And it adds other benefits. It says, it shall be health 
to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. So it's very beautiful because in verse 6, it's talking about, in verse 7, it says, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. So pride on the back of disobedience is when, um, I don't know if it's disobedience on the back of pride or pride on the back of disobedience, but however you want to look at it, it says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So you can see how we end up on suffering street. Is, is being wise in our own eyes. Not having that reverential fear of the Lord that, that he said, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't date that person. Don't get into that marriage. Don't get into that business deal. The, the reason you're able to disobey the Lord is because you don't have the fear of the Lord. Another plot says the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. Another scripture says the fear of the Lord is also the beginning of wisdom. So how do we end up on suffering street? This is how. Another part, part of scripture says my people are perishing because of lack of knowledge. My people are held in captivity because of lack of knowledge. And my people are perishing because of ignorance. That shows us how we end up on suffering street, ignorance and lack of knowledge. Anyways, it goes on to say, be no wise in thy own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy, with, thy, with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thy increase. So shall thy burns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. Then verse 11, which we don't really like to hear. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be wary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be wary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. So, on talking about this point of Embracing the cap of your suffering, it is important not to push it away because God does it from a point of love, not because he hates you, not because you've fallen out of grace or because he doesn't like you, but it says, and says, neither be wary of his correction. This is what I was saying, embracing a season of suffering. There are consequences when you resist your cup. And we, we're going to talk about that. I'd love to illustrate that with some real examples. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be wary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Embracing the cap of suffering, we spent a lot of time talking about that, but I say that it gives you strength when you know that there's a new strength that starts to come in when you stop praying, God, remove this cap, and you start praying, Father, give me grace to drink this cup. When you start like Jesus, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed for the Father to take away the cup, but when he realized that wasn't the Father's will, he said, nevertheless, 
not my, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus prayed, saying, If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And once Jesus moved his heart posture into that position, it said, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. When you know that you're in a season where God is correcting you, is letting you go through suffering, the moment you change your attitude, strength comes in. The moment you stop resisting the cup, the moment you, you, you seek discernment and wisdom on, 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 on what is really happening. So listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about we must persevere in faith. I'm kind of doing um, a sweeping across. It's kind of like re reiterating some things I've said in the previous episodes. I really feel that action right now. So, and then we will see how best we can round up. So stick with me. As I say, talking about this subject is not fun. And I feel that I've received utterance, so I'm just making the best of it. And I want to make sure that we touch on all the sensitive subjects. So now we're touching, re revisiting, embracing the cup of suffering. Because if you don't, I want to get to talking about the examples of the consequences that you can find yourself in when you don't embrace your season of suffering. But first of all, before you can even embrace the season of suffering, to properly embrace the season of suffering, we are presented with, a, with an argument here. Well, it's not an argument. With a scripture here that has said, despise not the chastening of the Lord. From Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, for whom the Lord loves, he correcteth. So our season of suffering is because God loves us. I know. But we're now about to see a context where God says, if fathers discipline their own children, how much more the Lord? So before we can now understand why should you embrace your cup of suffering, you need to also now get the context that God allowing you to go through this is coming actually from a point of love. You can call it tough love. So, it's saying, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Neither be wary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Now, if you come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, Wow. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12. It's talking about persevering through chastisement, embracing the cap of suffering. Now, the context we are receiving here is the context of why you should embrace this season, why you shouldn't resist the cup of suffering because it's from a point of love. The dross, take, take the dross away from the silver and a vessel for the finer will come forth. It's burning away the chaff 
It's like gold purified by fire. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we're seeing, verse 5 is saying, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hmm. Wow. This is real suffering, guys. We need, as Christians, we need not to sugarcoat that there is suffering as a Christian and that there is suffering according to the will of God. We need to stop running around and, and, and telling people that the gospel is only uh, miracles, signs, wonders, and breakthroughs. That's the problem. The body of Christ right now is focused only on one side of the coin. We need to understand there is suffering. We're going to talk about the suffering, the sufferings of other sufferings, contexts of Christ that we shouldn't resist. You know, the suffering of submission, the suffering of, of, of resistance, and the suffering of persecution. But we're talking about a suffering here that has been You've ended up on suffering shit because of disobedience. And now the Lord has to correct you. And unfortunately, he has to do it through suffering, through pain, through chastening. Man, it's even using the word scourging. That word is, 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 is heavy. Scourging. It says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Let's find another translation and see here. Another rendering of the same scripture. This is serious stuff. This is serious business. We need to stop beating around the bush and hiding these things. For the Lord corrects and disciplines everyone whom he loves. He punishes, even scourges every son. Man, let's find the definition of scourge from, from Webster's Dictionary. And I'm using Webster 1828, not these walk dictionaries that we have these days. Scourge. Wow. Wow. This is hard to read. It's almost I don't want to read it because it makes God look bad. It says, And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Listen to the definition of scourge. Of scourge. Scourge. A punishment. Vindictive affliction wow he or that which greatly afflicts harasses or destroys <laughs> scourge to weep severely scourge as a verb 
to punish with severity. My goodness. To chastise. To afflict for sins or faults. And with the purpose of correction. He will scourge us for our iniquities and will have mercy again. Yeah. But let's look at the context. Verse 7, it says, If you endure chastening, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, if you be without chastisement, whereof are all partakers? He's saying that we are partakers of the Lord's chastising. Chastisement. It says, but if you be without it, if you're trying to resist it, it says, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, it's talking about our earthly fathers, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection under the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, it's talking about God, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. My goodness. So the profit is that we might be partakers of his holiness. Then it goes on to say, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby with. My goodness. Wow. I mean, that's a place for us to really stop and, and reflect. And those are some deep words you know the thing that um that i love about the bible is the bible tells it as it is the bible is the only book that will tell you something like that and not hide that facet of god but again you need to understand that god is doing this to in essence to the fallen nature of man. There's no scourging in heaven. Because when people read such scriptures, they stop there. You need to put things in context. There's no scourging in heaven. There's no scourging in heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, we see how this story ends. It says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be. Wow. It says, And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. Verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is how the story ends. When we transition into the new heaven and the new earth, there's no scourging. There's no painful chastising. Because the sin nature, the rebellious nature of man, will have been dealt with. The sin and rebellious nature of man will have been dealt with. So you need to understand these things and put them in context. And so, why? What are some of the consequences of resisting your season of suffering? Romans chapter 12. Let's go there. Let's give this some context. Romans chapter 12. There has been a subject that's been on my heart to talk about when it comes to consequences of resisting a cup of suffering because it's common amongst our youth. Romans chapter 12 talks about, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Okay. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It says, be not conformed to this world. During suffering, there is a renewal of our minds that happens as we had, as we read that Jesus who learned obedience by the things which he suffered and became perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see the outcome of when we embrace our cup of suffering. 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's talk about that. I want to present some scripture back up here. And then use some examples on consequences of resisting your cup of suffering. First Peter chapter 5, verses 10 reads. Wow. It says, But the God of all grace, 
who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish you, strengthen, and settle you. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So, that's the fruit. That's the end goal. That's the desire of the Lord after you've gone through suffering. Make you perfect, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. So that you're not on a soul coaster. Your emotions going up and down as a yo-yo. But in Romans chapter 5, it's saying that be not conformed to this world. There is a conformity that is stripped out of us during a season of suffering. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So there's different there's different wills of God from this scripture. There's a good will, there's an acceptable will, and there's a perfect will. People who resist their cups of sufferings or who get weary of the Lord's correction will end up in what is called the acceptable will of God. If you let the Lord fulfill his process and do his thing on you and, and burn out the chaff and burn out the self-dependencies and burn out the pride and, and, and burn off the disobedience and burn and put fear and reverence in you and put the understanding that it is God not man who delivers people that breakthroughs are ignited by god that our dependence your dependence should not be on your husband on your spouse on your job on on all of this it talks about the perfect will of god if you resist your cup of suffering if you're trying to prematurely end your season of chastisement you end up making decisions where God now says, okay, you don't want me to deal with this impurity, with this um, insufficiency. You don't want me to deal with this flaw in you. I'm going to let you go with what is called the acts, with what is called the acceptable will of God. For my generation, there's a lot of pressure on marriages. And for some reason, being alone is deemed like being in isolation, being single. is something that is frowned upon. Because it's the people who are in relationships that are able to take good vlogs and cute Instagram pictures and get likes and everyone saying, oh, look at them, a lovely couple. They're able to take vacation pictures and all of these things. If you go, if your mind has been adjusted to that, you are what he's saying, you are conformed to the world. 
conformity to the world's way of doing things is basically how we end up on the path of disobedience and end up in on suffering street. So let's say there's an inefficiency in you. There's a flaw in you. You're not the kind of person who is comfortable being single and being alone. You have low self-esteem. You're the kind of person who you feel on your own, you're not complete. You need someone to tell you every morning, good morning, beautiful, to tell you you're beautiful, to tell you you're handsome, to tell you this, to tell you that. You need someone to uplift you. You need another human being. Mean, meaning you, you don't feel like on your own, you are your full self-worth. You feel your full worth. You don't, you, you, you are in your full worth when someone else is by your hand. So the Lord has been trying to whip that out of you. So you get in a relationship, it goes south. Two, three months in, you, you go quiet, you go back in another relationship. Meanwhile, the full period of chastising of, of, of the Lord pressing this whole wrong idea that you need a man to complete you or you need a woman to complete you is you're going to have to go through a period of isolation for two years. But you don't, but it's painful to even think about it that you can go for the next two years not married, not in a relationship, single. I mean, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do this? How can you abstain from sex? How, I mean, how? How possible? How humanly possible? You're conforming to the world that you must have sex to settle that each, the craving. You must have a boyfriend, you must have a girlfriend. You must be married at this age. So what the Lord does, he puts you in a situation where he wants to squeeze that wrong mindset out of you. So every relationship you're going on has failed. Instead of taking it as a signal and saying maybe let me hold off on dating anyone. Let me hold off on entering into a relationship. Let the Lord squeeze this dependency, squeeze this fear that I'm getting old. Let the Lord squeeze out this dependency that I am not enough, that I need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I need a husband in order to be 100%. Let me let the Lord deal with that. And let him squeeze that insufficiency out of me. Instead of letting the Lord take do his thing, you quicken the process. You quicken the process. Instead of letting the Lord do his thing, instead of yielding your body as a sacrifice and saying, okay, it's going to be painful. I've never been single for um, this, this. This can be you thinking, 
okay, this is going to be painful, Lord. I've never been single before. Some people have been in a relationship since they were 12. So someone is in a relationship for the age of 12. Now they, they're in a breakup or maybe they break up at like 25. And so they feel like the whole world is falling apart. The thought that they can even be single for the next three years until they're 28 is unfathomable. It's unfathomable, it's unfathomable, unfathomable to them. So now, meanwhile, God has finally gotten them to a point where he's saying, you always depended on someone. I want to show you that you are dependent, that I'm the only source of your happiness, that I should be your center point, that I should be your focus. So I'm going to take you through a wilderness of, of being single. However, a person who lacks understanding starts to perhaps even make their last relationship work again. They now start to go back. Meanwhile, they know that they it ended. All signs pointed that all symptoms showed that it should end. But they're not ready to deal with this reality. They don't want to accept that. So every four months, you go through these spouts of you're in a relationship or you maybe you're seeing someone, you're trying to date, you're trying to whatever, that doesn't work out. Then you go through four months of silence and then you're back on another wagon. Meanwhile, you, you're meant to say, I'm going to take as long as I need to. Where you let that desire of wanting or needing a relationship be whipped out of you. That is what James says. In the book of James, we see this. That's what James says. I love how these scriptures are just one leading to the other. In James chapter 1, it says, my, chapter 2, yeah, chapter 1, verses 2. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. It's very interesting. It says, as you're dealing with this and you're trying to figure out what is going on, Lord, what is going on, what is going on. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. It's, he's saying, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God wants to weep that wanting of a husband out of you. God wants to weep that wanting of a boyfriend out of you, that wanting of a girlfriend, that wanting of a wife. He wants to weep that dependency out of you, such that when, when you think about a husband or a wife, you're not like, I want, I want. That's that want. That's that craving of that thing. God wants to weep that out of you. That's why we go through suffering. Uh, uh, in a sense of, of when you go through a fast. The psalmist says, through fasting, I quietened my soul and flesh. Let me find that. 
It says, through suffering, it says, no, through fasting, I quietened my soul. Psalms, yes. Psalm 35, verse 13. It says, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. It's talking about when you're fasting, that's a suffering of denial. What happens is that you quieten your soul. So when you're going through what you call a suffering of isolation and you think that God doesn't want you to get married, no, it's because there is something in you that puts your hope thinking that you will not fulfill destiny, you on your own are not enough that your true price is when you have a husband. Your true price is when you have a wife. There's a want, there's a craving you have for another human being. That's what, that's what patience does. It says, but let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But if you fast track, if you find a way of getting out of the suffering of God and you are able to kind of weave, uh, somehow sidestep the process, yes, God can let you, if he's, if he's trying to press you, press you, and you're moving his hand off you, he now leaves you to your own will, which becomes his acceptable will. It's not the good and perfect will. It's just acceptable. Says, okay, this is what you're going to go with. So that's how people end up in wrong relationships, wrong marriages, wrong businesses, um, all of this. The consequence of resisting your cup of suffering is that you are bound to end up in what is called the acceptable will of God. It's not going to be his perfect will. It's not going to be his good will. It will just be acceptable where you now have to carry that cross. And once you end up in the acceptable will of God, it means you are bound to give birth to an Ishmael. The acceptable will of God is what we call an Ishmael. Is having a bastard. An Ishmael. That's the acceptable will of God. And so you're always going to have to have that Ishmael with you. So let, let God do his thing. Let God do the pressing. Let God finish the process. Don't rush it. Don't try to run out of it. You could end up in a wrong marriage. And then divorce. You can end up with the wrong business partner. You could make up making the wrong business move because you feel that everyone is investing and you're going to miss out on the season, you know, certain gains in, in your portfolio. Meanwhile, the piece of God is saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You end up investing your money and then the market crashes. Everything goes belly up. 
and now you're in Suffering Street. You ended up with what is called the acceptable will of God. So there's so many other consequences when we resist our cup of suffering. As a world, we refused to let the, 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 the oracles of God guide our morality. And now all hell has broken loose. Woo! All hell has broken loose. I don't even know how I ended up here. But now you have people within um, the LGBTQ and so forth community that are attacking each other. You have people who are identify as gay attacking transgenderism. You have transgenders attacking people who are gay. So the point being is that anytime we resist instructions, especially divine oracles of instruction, all hell breaks loose. Because now, when it comes to the envelope, how far the envelope of morality or immorality can be pushed, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. There's groups right now that feel that love has no age restriction because they say love is love. You can love whatever, whatever color, whatever race, whatever height, and now they've added whatever age. So you have people who are saying it's not wrong if someone loves little kids. So then pedophilia can no longer be considered as a crime. We're first tracking towards that. But all of these show that people, let's talk about resisting the caps of suffering not just as Christians, but you can see in the world right now, what has happened? Mental health, because we have resisted the culture of isol you know, of being, of isolation, of being quiet, of being by yourself. We, 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 we tried to really resist this whole mantra of being still, being quiet, appreciating singleness. We created dating apps so that we could connect people faster because it was too painful to be with yourself. It was too painful for organic relationships to happen. And what's the success rate? Uh, it gave birth to hookup culture. What has happened to hookup culture? Real love, real uh, relationships, uh, divorce rates have gone up. Um, the fabric of relationships has been weakened. There's not real fabric or organicity in relationships because people are meeting on grounds of how fast can I know you? So that let me get over the whole courting, the, the old school pursuing of a woman, you know, it's, it's done away with it's, 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 it's I like this, like this, how fast can we meet, you know? And let's get let's get to the goods. Let's get to sex. Let's let's how fast can we get to sex? Meanwhile, 
so many consequences have come out of that. People are hurt. People are being used. Uh, our culture has become a sexually charged character. And now we have women who are, who are saying they, they're being objectified. Meanwhile, all of this is coming from when culture just thought that it was wrong to be still and quiet. We introduced fear of missing out. That became a disease. And now mental health, because people are like, okay, fear of missing out, post everything you're doing about your life on Twitter and Instagram. While that was happening, other people were trying to keep up with the Joneses. So people are rushing into marriages, people are rushing into mortgages, people are rushing into car payments, people are rushing, buying vacation trips and credit cards so that they could post on Instagram. All of this is because we resisted certain caps of suffering. Anyways, there's a lot. There's a lot. We can even look at it in the context of government and all of this. There's a lot. There's a lot for us to, 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 to talk about. But I just wanted to show you using some examples that if you resist your cup of suffering, you're going to end up in what is called the acceptable will of God. You are about to have an Ishmael. And you're going to have to live with that Ishmael for the rest of your life. Anyways, yeah, I believe we've touched on a lot today. There's only one thing left for us to talk about. Um, we will round up this series of suffering, I believe, in our next episode. So we'll just do some more rounding up, just kind of close it out without a rush, but not, not in a hurry, I mean. But as always, thanks for tuning in. This was Unplugged. We hope this episode blessed your heart. Your host for today was Calvin Cavanda. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode. Sela.